did that for us. We could not do it for ourselves, but He did it for us. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I'm going to ask you to turn to uh, an easy book in the Bible to find. It's actually uh, one that we don't look at a lot, uh, but it's one that we should be paying attention to. It's the book of Revelation. It is the last book of the Bible. I want you to go to chapter 8. And uh, just hang on, I'm going to get there to the reading of the Word uh, in just a few moments. But I want to set the stage today uh, for what we want to share and talk about this morning. As we have uh, talked about this for the last uh, few months, I want to talk to you this morning about the power of prayer before the altar of God. I want you to understand that every time that you lift your voice before the Lord, it is not in vain. When we have a God-honoring and God-exalting prayer, when we are uh, seeking the face of God, I want you to know that God takes every single prayer in which His people have ever prayed, and He is going to do something special with them one day. And uh, we're going to look at that this morning. I, I, I stumbled across this um, and never had really put this together. Even when I preached through the book of Revelation a few years ago, I, I really didn't catch this until just recently. And, and, and I, I was just overwhelmed by what I read and what the Lord showed me. So I want to share that with you this morning. But to set it up, I want to tell you a story of, from another book that I read by a man by the name of John Franklin who wrote a book on uh, prayer in the church. And uh, that book is entitled, uh, And the Place Was Shaken. And what a powerful book that is on the, uh, the church in prayer and how that we can uh, take prayer to the next level in our churches, and something that we're going to continue to focus on as the time goes on. But here John Franklin gives an account of something that happened many years ago, back in actually 1990, when he had joined a group of people of 250 to participate in a two-week evangelistic crusade in in Mabasa, uh, Kenya, which at the time had a population of about one million people. They were divided into teams of three, each team going hut to hut and house to house, presenting the gospel. And John Franklin said that he was in awe. He said, a few times in my life I've been in a service or a prayer meeting where the manifest presence of God could be felt, but never before in a whole city. He said, wherever he walked, the presence of the Lord tangibly permeated the land so much that often people were saved by the dozens. Franklin goes on to tell one account when the team of three was walking down a dirt road that led to the next village. Up ahead, there were three Kenyans men seated, uh, seating on a stool on the roadside. As we approached, he said, one of them arose, walked briskly towards us, and greeted us in English. Excuse me, are you from America, he asked. Yes. We, uh, are you the ones who have come to tell us the word of God? Yes, I answered. We've heard that you've come, and we've heard of Jesus and His great power. Tell me, how does one become His follower? He goes on to say, my friends and I want to know. And so John explained the plan of salvation, and without a trace of hesitation, the man immediately replied, let's pray. John Franklin thought that uh, uh, what you and I would probably thought, uh, that was too easy. He must not have understood what I was saying. So he repeated it again, but the man interrupted him. 
I understood the first time, let's pray. The story of people coming to them were saved that happened over and over again. In all, they calculated 30,000 people responded to the gospel just in 14 days' time. It was an extraordinary 14 days of revival for the team uh, in Franklin. But there's a backstory, he goes on to say, that speaks to our purpose this morning. The, three months earlier, several churches in Mombasa began fervently praying for their consecrated days of evangelism. During two weeks of the crusade, a different church prayed all night, each night. John Franklin joined one of those all-night prayer meetings, praying until 7 a.m. when he went to bed. He woke up four hours later, and he felt the presence of God in his hotel room so strongly that he did not rise from his bed, but simply slipped out of the sheets and fell to his knees in prayer. That day following the prayer meeting, John said to every single adult that they witnessed who trusted Christ, no one rejected the gospel. Franklin and others in the crusade made a big discovery in that crusade. The revival that came to the city happened because a prayer meeting of God's people. I said that story, and as I read it this week uh, again, I, I wanted to share that story with you because it's so important that we recognize how important it is for the church to take things before the throne room of grace. Not just haphazardly, but consistently and fervently to the point that we, we urgently cry out to God. Another writer, J. Edwin Orr, who's researched a lot on revival, and I've read a lot of his stuff on the issues of revival. He is a great authority, and he has studied and concluded, no great spiritual awakening has ever begun anywhere in the world apart from united prayer. That is so important for us to understand. If we want to see the world around us changed, if we want to see our, our churches powered again, if we want to see revival fall upon our land, my friends, I want you to know it is not going to happen by us just sitting in the pews. It's only going to happen when we fall on our face before God. It is so important that we recognize the importance of prayer. That's why I want to talk to you about the power of prayer before the altar of God. So as we are in need of a prayer revival, we're in need of a renewal of heart in prayer this morning in the church. Among those who lead our church, those who lead the ministries of our church, and even those who are sitting in the pews of our church, um, we need to recognize that there needs to be a renewing of heart towards the area of prayer. In other words, from the pulpit to the pews, we need to get back on our face before God. It is important for us to know that we must seek God's face. To help make my point, I want us to go to Revelation chapter 8. So if you would, stand with me as we honor the reading of the Word, and I'm going to get there in just a minute. As we look at this, there is something that is astonishingly happening in this passage of Scripture as it hurls us towards the closing days of history. Revelation 8 talks about what's going to happen during those end days. And in the midst of the earth-shattering events, there is an amazing pause in heaven. 
And then comes a wonderful lesson about prayer that is so staggering that if it weren't here in the Scripture, we couldn't believe it ourselves. At least that's the way I was when I, when I stumbled across this again in reading. So Revelation chapter 8, I want us to read verses 1 through 5. For those of you that are at home and don't have your Bibles, it will be on the screen. For others, you can read along with me or listen to the words in which I say from the Scripture. Here it goes. And when he had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about a space of an half an hour. And I saw the seven angels which stood before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. And another angel came and stood at the altar, having a golden censer. And there was given unto him much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense which came with the prayers of the saints ascended up before God out of the angels' hands. And the angel took the censer and filled it with fire of the altar and cast it under the earth. And there was voices and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. Father, as we hear the reading of your word, now we ask that, Father, that as we come to the understanding of your word, I pray that, Father, that you would move me out of the way, hide me behind the cross, let your word speak for itself, for the power that is in it, Lord, that talks about the saints and what our prayers are doing at the very altar of God. Lord, I pray that we would begin to understand the power of our prayers before the altar of a living God. Lord, I pray that you would just speak to us and through us, O Lord. I pray that the power of God, the Spirit of the Lord, would fall upon us, O Lord, that we might feel the, the need and the urgency to fall upon our own face before you today in prayer. Lord, now we ask, Lord, take the reading and hearing of your word and use it in the preaching of your word, Father, to proclaim the very gospel of Jesus Christ our Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. God bless you, and you may be seated this morning. There are three major things that I want to share with you. Um, in this passage, there is an amazing connection here between the prayers of the saints and the end of time. I want you to begin to, to imagine how that your prayers today, how that you praying for your loved ones, for the, the, the nation and the troubles and the turmoils and the struggles of this world, how that your prayers today are going to affect the time that is to come somewhere down the road. I want you to understand that, that God takes every prayer and He holds that prayer and He keeps that prayer and He's going to use that prayer to accomplish His glory glorious will. You see, I want you to see that there is a definite connection between the prayers of the saints and the time of judgment that's to come. The gathered prayers of God's people are portrayed here as instruments God was going to use to bring this world to its pointed consummation. Let's break this down carefully so that we can grasp the enormous importance of praying together as well as our individual prayer life and our corporate prayer life, how the two come together. And because the two come together, it is as important or, or perhaps uh, uh, connectively important as our individual prayers. There are three major events in this scripture that I want us to look at this morning as we look at the catastrophic drama of the last days unfold. So the first thing that I want us to see is perhaps you've heard of this many, many times before. Uh, the, the, the evidence of the scroll that is to be opened. The seven sealed scroll. 
Now, the Bible talks about this in the book of Revelation because it is so important. Now, in verse 1, it opens with a reference to the opening of the last seal, the seventh seal of the scroll. When he opened the seventh seal, there was a silence, the Bible says, in heaven for about the span of a half an hour. And we'll come back to that importance in just a little bit. To understand the seventh seal, if you've got your Bibles, we're going to need to go on a little journey today. I want you to back up just two chapters with me to chapter 5. We're going to kind of pick up where chapter 5 tells the reason why the scroll is so important. In chapter 5, in verses 1 through 5, here's what it says, And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written therein, Uh, And on the backside, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seal thereof? And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I, John, wept much because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereupon. Now I'll come back to verse 5 in just a minute. The enormous significance of the contents of the scroll is such that no one in heaven, not the six-winged cherubim that continually declared the glory of the Lord before the throne of God, not the uh, resplendent Gabriel, the, uh, the angel, nor God's special messengers, nor even the mighty Archangel Michael uh, 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 could open this mighty scroll. What John says here in these verses is that there was a proclamation made and there was a calling forth for someone. What was the thing in the right hand of God that caused the high and the holy in heaven to shrink back? It came time to serve. John knew the contents of this scroll. He were told back in chapter 4, we're not going to go back there, but if you just go back and look, John was told in chapter 4 that he was going to be brought into heaven in the Spirit uh, and given the promise that he would see what must take place after this. After this being what? After the end, after the church has been taken home, after the, the rapture of the church, when we're no longer here and God is going to usher into the world a time of great judgment for the sins and the rebellion and the disobedience and the turning away from the heart of God. After the church age is over, and by the way, let me just say to you, I believe that we're coming very close to entering that time in which the age of the church, the opportunity for us to go out and to witness and to share the gospel, to tell people about the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, the death on the cross, is coming to a close. It is time that we recognize how important it is to win people to the Lord. We need a mighty falling of God's Spirit upon the world again. We need a movement of God among the church. We need the power of God once again to make us bold and make us go out into a lost and dying world to proclaim the gospel once again. John was promised that he would see what would take place after this. John had the unparalleled opportunity to see what the end will look like the unfolding of human history. Its opening would enact the final chapter for the world. For those who live in it, it was like the living map 
the finale of what God had put in place from the very beginning. When all things would be brought to their consummation under the purpose of God. The scroll must be open, and God had purposed that someone apart from himself would administrate the, the events of the end time. But who would that be? According to verse 4 in chapter 5, no one stepped forward. There was none, and John began to weep, and John began to cry out, Where, oh where, are we ever going to see the end? Who is worthy? When the call went out of who is worthy to open the scroll and break it sealed, no one, not one step forward. And verse 3 suggests that John, who, who had this invitation to experience the, the end, was not going to see what he had been promised. The search produced no one. However, if we look at what we see in verse 5, go back to verse 5 of chapter 5. What John didn't understand, it was the delay was intentional. You know how that when you tell a story and you, and you, you come up to the punchline and then all of a sudden you, you stop just to kind of bring everybody to that place where they're all looking? All right, what's the punchline? What's the rest? That's exactly what God was doing in heaven in Revelation chapter 5 and verses 1 through 4. John didn't realize that God had intended for this to be a, a, a very um, important event. Because look at verse 5. And one of the elders said unto me, Weep not. Behold, the lion, the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. You know who the Lion of Judah is? It's none other than Jesus the Christ. Jesus, the one who died on Calvary's cross. The one who gave his life for you and for me. You see, the, the whole climatic uh, event was to, to remind us of the power that God had instilled in his son when he sent him into the world to die for us. Stop crying, John. Look, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has been victorious to open the scroll. The elder was referring to John uh, that he was, this was a deliberate and calculated pause established without a delay or without a doubt to remind us of the unmatchless power of Christ. In fact, as our Lord walks to the throne to take the scroll from His Father's hand, the Bible goes on to tell us here what takes place, and I'm just going to highlight it for you. The 24 elders surrounding the throne, each holding a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, fell before the people. In verse 9, and it says that they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you have slaughtered. You are redeemed people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. Just as Andy sang about the blood today, it is the blood that has given us the salvation. It is the blood that cleanses us from our sin. It is the blood that Jesus shed that makes you and I righteous right before God so that we can stand before God and say, I don't deserve to be here but Jesus paid it all for me. You see, the Bible tells us in verse 10 that you made them a kingdom and priest to our God uh, and they uh, will reign on the earth forever. 
Jesus alone has the royal right to open the seals of history and to oversee its final unfolding. Because Jesus died, and in dying He ransomed a great multitude of saints from all the nations, and He has made them priests and established them as rulers of the earth. Now don't miss this, it is the cross... It is the cross that is the key to our history. It is the cross that is the key to our future. What happened there 2,000 plus years ago will unlock the future uh, revelation of God's plan. Now listen, let me, let me remind you of who God redeemed. Look, at, if you will, flip over to chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. And it says in those verses, And this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, would no man could number of all the nation and the kindred and the people and the tongue stood before the throne and before the Lamb clothed with white robes and psalms in their hands and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. What happened 2,000 years ago is why we can say that I know, that I know, that I know that when I go, I'm going to be with Jesus because He paid it all for me. He paid the price. The one who will ride forth with a sword and rule the nations with a rod of iron has the right to do this because once he was slain, he was the slain Lamb of God. God is willing to give judgment of our history only into the hands of the one who first came to redeem humanity from their sin. And chapter 6 records what happens as Jesus begins to crack open the seals and the scrolls of the destiny. We don't have time to look at that, but let me just tell you a little bit about what happens. In the end, what we're going to see is uh, um, there is going to be a great devastation. Each time the seals are open, it creates global disasters. One quarter of the earth's population will perish under the judgment of God, according to verse 8 of chapter 6. Listen, people ask me all the time, Preacher, uh, do we see America in the end times? And, and I say, I don't see them in the pages. Perhaps, maybe, perhaps, maybe America is that one-third that is taken out in the beginning of the, uh, of the judgment of God. I don't know. It doesn't matter if we're there. It matters what we do while we're here. And we need to be doing what God has called us to do. And with this, each succession of the seal that is broken by Christ in heaven, humanity is brought frighteningly one step closer to the end and to the brink of all eternity. My friends, we see the, the scroll, the first major event in Revelation chapter 8 is the evidence of the opening of the seventh seal. But I want you to see that the next uh, event that takes place is the silence in heaven. A silence in heaven. Look back with me, if you would, to verse 8, or chapter 8 of verse 1. And chapter 8, verse 1. And when he had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of a half an hour. Now, we just got done talking about the fact that a climatic story sometimes has a pause, but I think there's a little bit difference that I see here than just telling a climactic story. There's something else that, that, that John wants us to see that he experienced in this time of silence. And we see that as Jesus breaks this last remaining closure to the scroll, once the scroll is opened, the wheels of God's judgment will begin to speed up, preparing the way for the second coming of Christ to the earth and to the end all. 
But before this occurs, something strange takes place. When he opens the seventh seal, there was a silence in heaven for the space of a half an hour. Now listen, I want you to understand that, that, that when we talk about the span of a half an hour, this is John's perspective. Remember, time is not the same in heaven as it is here on earth. John is looking at this. We don't know if maybe that time in heaven was a, a, a split second or it could have been a day or a millennial. We don't know. But for John, it seemed as though, uh, for, for those of us sitting here waiting for the next half hour to get done so that I'll be done, you could say, well, I understand what John was saying. It, it was that period of time that I wished that it was just over. But John reminds us that there's a period of time where, where the people, uh, for half an hour, there is quiet. And then the next sound that John hears and, and, and is found in verse 5, and it says there in, in verse 5 that, the, the, that um, he hears voices and thunders and lightning and earthquakes. My sense of this text tells me that Christ has opened the seven seals and the host of heaven stand in dread awe, dumbstruck with what is to happen with the opening of the scroll. The raw, sovereign power of God is about to be unleashed in a way that they've never experienced before. That will cause a cosmic uh, convulsion and everything will change forevermore. So that the inhabitants of the heavens share a stunned silence as God begins to do what, what we all dread that He will do one day. But something more is here in this moment. Because Jesus deliberately pauses to show John and to show us that the gathered power our prayers have is in the effect that they create in our future history. I wonder, do we ever ask the question, do our prayers really matter? Does it really matter what I pray what I pray for, or how often I pray? Does praying truly uh, accelerate the fulfillment of God's purposes in this world? The answer, my friend, throughout Scripture is utterly astoundingly yes. Yes, your prayers matter. Yes, the prayers that you pray and have been prayed throughout history have changed the heart of God, moved the heart of God to do and to fulfill the purpose of His will. Leon Morris said this about this passage. The saints of God appear insignificant to men at large, but in the sight of God they matter. Even great cosmic catastrophic events are held back on His on their account. And the praises of the angels give way to the silence so that the saints may be heard. Perhaps this time of silence was that it was for God to hear and for the world to hear the cries of the saints of God pleading for the coming judgment of God. In other words, in this silence after opening the seventh seal, we have a dramatic presentation of the importance of the prayers of all the saints. Let me ask you, has there ever been a time in your life when you cried out to God and asked Him 
When will you deal with all the evil of this world? How is it that billions of babies can be killed and murdered and yet you seem so silent on it, God? How is it that Christians can be uh, taken and killed and slaughtered by the groves? God, how is it that, that we can see the evil in this world? God, when are you going to do something about it? You see, we're not the first to think about prayers that way. All through our history, there have been those who have prayed those kinds of prayers. But have you ever wondered, is God even listening does God even care that I feel this way? Well, this passage tells us that not only was God listening, is God listening, and does God listen, but it also tells us that God is collecting all of these prayers for this very day. If I had time, I'd go back again to the book of Revelation and tell you that there was a period of time when, when the martyred church is praying and seeking God. God, how long will our, your children have to be killed before you act? And God is taking all of these prayers and He's collecting all of these prayers. Before the scroll is open, God wants to make it clear to John and to us that the unfolding of the end of the world will happen because of the prayers of the saints. Which brings us to our final movement today. I want you to see that the third movement that we see in this passage of Scripture is the supplication of the saints. My friends, I want you to understand this morning that every God-honoring, God-exalting, God-favoring, God-pleading prayer that you have ever prayed and will continue to pray is not in vain. It is not without the cause and the help of the Lord. Look at verse 3. In verse 3, and another angel came and stood in the altar having a golden censer. That was a, a, a bowl that, that where we would, they would place the incense that would be burned to create a, a smell in the room. And it says, and there given unto him much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. Now listen, I want you to understand that in this it says that it is the prayers of all the saints. All the saints that have been piling up upon the altar for all of the, the eons of time. If you ever wonder where your prayers go, and what does God do with them once you have prayed them and laid them at His feet? Here is one of the answers. They go unto the altar, the golden altar of the Lord before the throne. Now, if you're thinking, ah, come on. Preacher, think about it. Billions of people, millions and billions of prayers. How in the world is God going to hold on to all these prayers upon the altar? Well, I simply would remind you that how that mere human beings have created a microchip so small that it can hold billions and billions and billions of conversations and data and all kinds of things. If you think that humans can do such a thing and God cannot find a way to keep all the prayers of the saints at His feet so that He knows what we have asked of Him. Our God is able. We don't create anything without His ability. 
And therefore we know that he has that ability to be able to hold on to all of our prayers. But in verse 3, uh, we find that, that, that this putting with a, a, a censer of incense. Now, the censer uh, was lit in the altar, before the altar of God, to, to fill the room with a sweet-smelling fragrance. When we burn incense, we burn incense so that, that they will, will fill the room with a sweet smell. Listen, my friends, I want you to understand that first and foremost, every one of our prayers when we seek the face of God is a sweet-smelling savor unto our God. He desires to, hey, he's just whiffing it before him and saying, more, I love to hear from my children more. I love the smell of God's people crying out to me. But not only... But look at verse 4, And the smoke of the incense which came with the prayers of the saints ascended before God out of the angels' hands. But there will come a day when our prayers will be more, much, much more than just a sweet-smelling savor unto the nostril of our God. According to verse 5, the angel took the incense burner filled with its fire from the altar and he hurls it to the earth. And there, thundering and rumbling and lightnings and earthquakes. This chasmoclitic reaction to the thunder and the loud rumbling, the flashes of lightning and the earthquakes simply represent to us the action of God from heaven on the world as the scroll of the end of the age begins to open and the seven trumpets and the seven bowls are poured out. Now, we don't have time to talk about all of that. But don't miss this quiet point. In the midst of God hurling this judgment before the, the world, He reminds us of the prayers of the saints, of all the prayers of the saints that have come before Him as a sweet-smelling savor unto His nostril are now the very prayers that he is using as the power that pushes the, the forces of, of good upon the world. So let me begin my closing. One great preacher told me one time, in preaching you tell them what you want them to know, and then when you conclude you tell them what you told them that you want them to know. So I'm going to tell you what I want you to know. And then I'm going to conclude by telling you what I told you that I want you to know. So here it goes. What Revelation 8 shows us is that the prayers of the saints are the instruments that God uses to usher in the end of the world. Our prayers change history in more ways than perhaps that we even recognize. To date, we know that our prayers have changed history. We know that they have held back the, the wrath of God upon the world. We know that they have, they have caused revival to break out over the world. We know that our prayers have made a difference in, 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 in seeing God's purpose fulfilled in this world. And we are to know that one day God will use them to further the judgment of the, uh, of the world that will not bow to Him. No one, not one God-exalting prayer has ever been prayed in vain. 
What God wants us to believe about our God-exalting prayer is none of them is lost, but all has been placed in a particular place at the throne for Him. None is wasted or none is pointless. Not one is lost or forgotten. No, not one has been pointless. All our prayers accumulated at God's throne in the heaven until they reach their proper proportion. And then He will act. In accordance with His will to bless or to judge or to heal or to save or to any other number of perfect acts that God chooses to use our prayers for. Prayer is seen on two levels. It is seen on that of the individual level, the the times when you are alone with God, times when you cry out before God and nobody else knows what you're saying but Him and you. And then there is the time of corporate prayer, the time when the church of God, the family of God, the people of God gather together for uh, the acts of public prayer. Times when we cry out before the Lord, where God hears and answers. The millions upon millions of prayers over the last 2,000 years are gathered at the feet as the saints have cried out again and again in many forms, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it already is in heaven. It is also seen on that corporate level. There is a critical mass that comes when God's people combine their prayers together before God. It is in Scripture that He says that where two or three or more are gathered in agreement, there I am with you. No other time does God remind us. But during our times of corporate prayer, when we come with one heart, with one purpose, with one voice, and we cry out that God says, I'm in that. I'm a part of that. That's my people, and I am with them. Flames that have been growing brighter and brighter in the heavens and more and more pleasing in the presence of God. The time will come when God will command His holy angels to take the mighty censer censer and fill it with fire from the altar with the prayers that burn before the Lord. Pour it out upon the world and begin to bring God's great judgment and holy purpose to completion. Listen to what Thomas Torrance wrote about this passage. The fire comes from the very altar on which the prayers of the saints have been offered. This surely means that the prayers of God's people play a necessary part in ushering in the judgments of God. What are the real master powers behind the world? And what are the deeper secrets of our destiny? Here is the astonishing answer. The prayers of the saints and the fire of God. That means that more potent, more powerful than all of the dark and mighty powers let loose in this world, more powerful than anything else, 
is the power of prayer that ablazes by the fire of God that will be cast upon the world. So here's the bottom line about our prayer, individually and corporately. Two things. We cannot pray enough. Our prayers are stored at the altar of God and made the power for a great divine intervention in this world. Who knows what has already been brought by God's, by our prayers. We know that the scripture makes it clear that Jesus said in Luke chapter 18 verse 1, we ought always to pray and never lose heart. The second thing that we need to be reminded as we close our time today is consecrated and concerted prayer is uniquely appointed by God in the accomplishing of His mighty work. What I hope that you have seen this morning, what God has revealed to me this morning is the great need for more individual and corporate prayer in my life. Such as His mighty working increases exponentially, And His purposes are accelerated when we, as the church of God, pray together. So in saying that, I've asked Josh this morning to close our time together in a special way. He's going to come and lead us in a corporate prayer time. Time when we're going to pray a prayer together from Scripture. So Josh, come and explain. Um, so we're going to do things a little differently and and I don't know what better way to to sum this up with everything that's been said about God than to do a a psalm reading together as a prayer and the entire psalm is about praising the goodness and and majesty and the loving kindness of our great God and so we're going to have it on the screen for us and what I'd like to do is have you guys stand and we're going to read Psalm 145 together just praising the Lord for his goodness, praising him for his loving kindness, for all the things he does for us, continues to do for us, everything. And so, if you'll follow along with me, and we'll start up. Yes. All right, and we'll go ahead and begin. I will extol the Lord, my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you. Great is the Lord, and highly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise your works to another, and shall declare your mighty acts on the glorious splendor of your majesty, and on your wonderful works I will meditate. Men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts, and I will tell of greatness. They shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness and will shout joyfully of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all, and his mercies are over all his works. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and your ones shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom to make known to the sons of men 
your mighty acts, and the glory of your majesty of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord sustains all who fall and rises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you. You give them their food in due time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his deeds. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desires of those who fear him. He will also hear their cry and will save them. The Lord keeps all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord, and all flesh will bless his holy name ever and ever. Goodness gracious. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Lord, thank you for your beauty, your goodness, your mercy, and your grace. We love you. Thank you, Father, for your everything. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For worshiping with us today and for just the opportunity to be able to be a part of your life. And if you need us, we hope that you will contact us. The contact information flows upon the screen. You have it. Um, please call us. So we are thankful that you are here to worship with us today. May God bless you. Uh, for those of you that are here, uh, we are going to dismiss in a, in a certain order so that as to uh, make it flow. So thank you.